You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Jesus Christ, we've gathered here today to declare that we adore you, to declare that you are holy, that you are worthy, worthy to receive all glory and honor and power and praise and dominion. And we give you this honor because although you already possessed glory, you emptied yourself of your glory and became like one of us. And that although you possessed all power and dominion, you emptied yourself and embraced weakness. And although you, from the beginning of time, were always worthy of honor and of praise, you allowed yourself to be despised and rejected. Because you, who are the author of life, came to die, to suffer in our place, and to rise again to newness of life, to take away death's victory and hell's sting so that we could walk in newness of life, so that we could receive eternal life, so that we can look forward to the day where we will gather with all creation and declare that you are holy and to declare that you are worthy. And God, we declare that right now. And God, I pray, Lord, that as you've met with us, as we have sung to you, Lord, I pray now that you would speak to us through your word. Meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated and open up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now uh, with copies of the Bible. want to make sure everyone has a Bible in their hand. So if there is no Bible in your hand right now, put that hand up. And a holler at an usher so that you're able to follow along. Don't be shy. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, this is our gift to you. The series has been called Never Give Up. And we've been working our way through this Old Testament book um, named Nehemiah. And we've been following this idea of never giving up. And today we're looking at this concept of never give up because God is speaking. Has God ever spoken to you? Have you ever heard God's voice? How do you know when he is speaking? How can you confirm that what you're hearing or perceiving is actually coming from God and not just your own imagination? How do we know when God speaks? How do we know when God is speaking? We're going to see God speak to his people in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it's not in the way that we would normally think about God speaking. Normally when we hear someone say, God spoke to me, we think about some sort of uh, mystical, hyper-charismatic, ecstatic experience. We think about Moses and the burning bush or the thunderstorm on the top of the mountain. Or we think about Elijah and the still, small voice. 
But as we come to the pages of Nehemiah chapter 8, we see that God is clearly speaking, but he's speaking in a way that we so often take for granted. You see, what we're going to be doing today is we, in 2016, are going to look back to a time in 445 B.C., And we are going to expect that because God spoke in 445 BC that he is going to continue speaking and therefore speak to us now 2,500 years later. But that's the way that God's word works. The first thing that's recorded God saying in Genesis is let there be light. And there was light then. God spoke and he continues to speak. The lights are still on. The sun is still burning. The stars are still shining. The light continues to shine. And because he spoke and because he's eternal and because the word of the Lord stands forever, we can expect that if God has spoken, he will continue speaking. And so what's interesting about Nehemiah chapter 8 is that we are going to find ourselves looking back in time 2,500 years, and looking at an ancient Hebrew document written to people living at a different time, in a different place, from a different culture, in a different language, and we are going to expect God to speak to us through the words that he spoke to them. But here's the really neat thing about Nehemiah chapter 8, is that the people in Nehemiah chapter 8 are doing the exact same thing. They are going to find themselves reading an ancient document, a thousand years old, written by Moses, inspired by God. And they are going to hear God speak, not in some sort of mystical way, they are going to hear God speak through his word. And we need to never give up because God is speaking and he's speaking to us through his word. Yes, he still speaks in all kinds of different ways, but the way that he speaks most clearly and most authoritatively is through the reading and proclamation of his word. So as we come to Nehemiah chapter 8, the the wall is finished, but the work isn't done. Because God didn't just send Nehemiah to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. He sent them to rebuild the people. And we left off last time in Nehemiah chapter 6. And in Nehemiah chapter 7, there's a, a, a series of lists. He begins with protection for the city. And, and establishing guards and gatekeepers. And then the, after protection of the city, there's the population of the city. A whole list that Nehemiah actually copies from Ezra chapter 2. And then you have a, a list of what everyone gave and the different donations and contributions that were made in order for the city to be rebuilt. And so the walls are up. The city is now inhabited. The donations have been made. The gates have been erected. The guards are in place. And now they are ready to hear God speak to them. And today we're going to see five signs that God is speaking through his word. How can you know that God is speaking through his word? Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 says, And all the people gathered as one man. All the people gathered as one man. Here's the first sign. The first sign is unity. Unity. It begins by talking about all the people. That phrase is used nine times in our passage today. All the people did this. All the people did that. All the people did this. And it began with all the people gathering as one man. They all came together and they all had one desire. They all had one focus. 
and they wanted the word of God. You know that when God is speaking, God will be uniting his people. It goes on in verse 1, they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Notice where they gather. They gather at the water gate. They don't gather at the temple. They didn't gather at the place where only certain people, priests, descendants of Aaron or Levites, descendants of Levi, only certain people could go in there. They gathered at the water gate, the place where everyone goes. What do you think happens at the water gate? That's where you go to get water. Who needs water? Everyone. And God's word is meant for everyone. What unites us around God's word is the fact that we all need it. God's word is not intended just for some intellectual elite or some super spiritual person. God's word is not meant to simply be reserved for some sacred, special, holy place. God's word is meant for every person to take with them to every place. And that's what unites us all. You look around this room, look at all the different faces, all the different nationalities, all the different backgrounds, all the different denominational histories, all of these different things. And we are all united because we believe that God has spoken. And his word is for every person in every place and applies to every part of our lives. And look at how they describe the Bible. It says they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. Who wrote the book that they wanted read? Notice how there's, there's two authors who are mentioned. It's the law of Moses, but it's God who commanded it. They believe that Moses was the one who had written this ancient document a thousand years before, but they believe that it was God who was the one who was speaking through Moses, this is what we believe about the word of God. We believe that God spoke through men. Second Peter chapter one says this so clearly. Take a look at this on the screen. It says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a, a good theological summary of what Christians believe about the Bible. You've got a numerous different authors writing over a, a, a broad timeline, but all of them were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Their personality, their vocabulary, their culture comes through in the way that they wrote, but God spoke through all of them. They were carried along. And so they see this. It's the law of Moses that God had commanded. They were united by the belief that God was speaking. And we are here today as a church. What unites us is we believe that God is speaking. What unites us with other churches in our city is that we believe that God has spoken and is speaking. What unites us with other churches around the world is the belief that God has spoken and is speaking. What unites us with the people living in Jerusalem in 445 BC is a belief that God has spoken and is speaking. We are not only just united together, we're united with other churches, we're united across geography, we're united across history, the people of God who believe that God has spoken and are speaking. Listen, we may not agree on every interpretation or every single point of doctrine, but we believe on the important thing that God has spoken through his word and therefore continues to speak to us. I love this, they they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book. 
They're all there at the water gate, sort of waiting. And then I don't know how it happened. Maybe just one person just started, just said, hey, bring the book. Maybe one person right now could just shut it out. Bring the book. And then a couple of other people started shouting. And then a few more started to raise their voice. And then all of a sudden they started chanting, you know, bring the book. Bring the book. Come on, a little loud now. Bring the book. Bring the book. Now, imagine, imagine if Ezra hadn't brought his Bible that day. They wanted the book. They didn't want to hear Ezra. They wanted to hear from God. They wanted the book. They believed that God had spoken and would continue to speak through his word. So listen, I want to give you complete permission that if I ever stand in front of this congregation and don't have a Bible in my hand, it'll start with one person, and then I want the whole congregation, maybe I'll do this as a test, like a fire drill, (laughs) and start shouting, bring the book. Because a man standing in front of God's people without God's word is just a man. And the people of God wanted Ezra to bring the book And they were united around that. Who is this Ezra? He's described in verse 1 as he was the scribe. And then in verse 2, it says, so Ezra the priest brought the law. He's He's a priest and he's a scribe. He's a descendant of Aaron. But he had also gone above and beyond what it meant to be a priest. He also had made himself a scribe. He studied God's word so closely that he became an expert in the word. And uh, in Ezra, in the book of Ezra, which, which, which occurs uh, right before the book of Nehemiah, this is how Ezra is described. In Ezra chapter 7, it says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Notice the sequence. He began by studying the word. He wanted to be a person who knew and understood the Bible. It started with studying. And then the next came doing the word. He studied it and then he lived it out. And then after he had done those two things, studying and then living, then he taught it to other people. And that's the sequence that I hope to have in my own life, that I would be someone who doesn't just get up and teach God's word but who would be faithful in studying it and then faithful in living it in my own life and then teaching it to others. This was was Ezra's calling in God's word. This This is what Ezra was called upon to do, to study the word, to do it, and to teach it. That verse, Ezra 710, is such an influence on my life. We actually named our firstborn son. This is our this is our Ezra. And Ezra is named after this Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, Ezra gets tired of the way that I pray for him because I pray for him almost the same way almost every night that he would set his heart to study and do and teach God's word. And I remember one time one of his little brothers was sick and uh, uh, he was crying and screaming and I asked, Ezra woke up and I said, Ezra, do you wanna pray for your, pray for your little brother? And do you know what Ezra prayed? <laughs> this little guy <laughs> put his hands on his little brother and said, God, I pray that my brother would set his heart to study and do. <laughs> it's like I want him to pray that he stop crying, that he feel better. 
But this, 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 this character Ezra appearing now in the book of Nehemiah is just another expression of unity when God is speaking. Ezra showed up in the city of Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah got there. Uh, he um, was there. He, he was already there teaching the word, trying to help the people when Nehemiah arrived on the scene. Now, if you were to find a biblical odd couple, two people who were more polarized in all of the Bible, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone more different than Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, there's one instance in where Nehemiah is so angry over the sin of God's people, he grabbed some of the leaders by the beard and tore out their beard. In the book of Ezra, Ezra is so upset by the sins of God's people, he got down his, on his knees, he grabbed his own beard and pulled out his beard. Nehemiah showed up on the scene with a military escort. The king of Persia wanted to give him all of, this, all of these resources and all of this protection, so Nehemiah shows up with the security entourage. Ezra, when he came 13 years earlier, refused he made the journey all by himself. He, he refused to have any protection. These two men, Nehemiah, this visionary leader, administrator, Ezra, this calm, quiet, pastor, scholar. And yet God used them both. Very, very different men. Different gifts, different calling, different strengths, different weaknesses, and yet God used them both. He united them both. Thank God that God has not made us all the same. Thank God we're not all Nehemiahs. Thank God we're not all Ezra's. Thank God that God has provided a multitude of gifts, a multitude of personalities, all to be united for his mission to be accomplished. When God speaks, there is unity. It goes on in verse two. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, more unity, and all who could understand more unity what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So men and women were united. Their children were united with them. Everyone who could understand was there to hear the word of God. Unity from, from all perspectives. And so here they are. They're all gathered and then it says in verse three, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Jot this down as the second sign that God is speaking, attentiveness, attentiveness. Ezra read from early morning till midday. That's five to six hours. That's a long sermon. That's a sermon series. And it says that the people were all attentive to the book of the law. They were expecting God to speak. They were leaning on the edge of their chair, wanting to hear from God not checking their watch to, to, to find out what they're doing next, dialed in, completely focused, completely attentive. And I'm so thankful even for the attentiveness I see in, in, 
in this room right now. What is happening here at Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton is not normal. That people come and bring their Bible. If they forget their Bible, they put their hand up and get one. That Bibles are open. That people are leaning forward. That people are focused. This is so encouraging. This is such a blessing. This is such a sign that God is working and that God is speaking. That there is attentiveness among the people of God. This is what the Apostle Paul recognized in the church of Thessalonica. He said, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That when we get together on Sunday morning, we believe that God is going to speak. It's not just going to be a man giving a lecture about God, but that God is going to speak through a man and that lives are going to be changed. They were attentive to the word. They were not bored by the word. I did not sign up become, to become the pastor of Harvest Boring Chapel. This is Harvest Bible Chapel. And the Bible is not boring. The Bible is the most incredible book. It is living and active. Not only is the story, the narrative unbelievable, but it actually puts us in the story and speaks to us. It cuts through the thoughts and intentions of our very hearts. That's not boring. That is awesome. And we would do well to pay attention to God's word. Here are some ways that we can uh, continue to grow in paying attention. Listen, I think so often it starts on Saturday night. Too often we allow ourselves to do things the night before church we would never do a night before work. And, and just thinking that we can just sort of uh, fade into the background or slouch back in our chair because of whatever we were involved in on Saturday night. No, a commitment to being attentive to God's word doesn't just begin when the service starts. It begins on the decisions that we make on the, on the weekend leading up, to, leading up to church. Bringing a Bible or getting your hands on God's word and having a pen, expecting God to speak. If God's gonna tell you something to, that you need to do or if he's gonna tell you something that's gonna transform your life, you're gonna wanna make sure you remember it. This is what your boss doesn't want to see when he's giving you important instructions. He doesn't want to see you do this. They don't want to see that. They, don't want, to, they want to see you scribbling down in detail what your boss is asking you to do in the same way. To just sort of sit back and passively assume that we're going to remember all of the things that God is showing us through his word. We need to have a pen in hand on Sundays and when we're reading on our own, expecting God to speak and committed to remember what he says. And in verse four it says, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Notice, notice the preparation. The preparation that went into this. They want people to pay attention. The people want to pay attention themselves. So they want to be able to hear the person that's speaking and they want to be able to see the person that's speaking. And so they planned ahead. They did what they could to make it, to make a, gathering the attention as easy as possible. So they built a platform and they put the work in ahead of time. Now the, the people who built the platform weren't mentioned by name. And 
God forgive us if we would just think that God's word was heard on that day just because Ezra brought the scroll that day. No, God's word was made that day because a construction crew got their, their elbows greasy making a platform in order that Ezra could stand on it so the people could hear. And look, look around. This is, this is an elementary school gymnasium. Five days a week. And, and there's a crew of people who faithfully come in here and make it possible for us to pay attention with, with lighting and with the screen and with our own platform so that God's word can be heard. And listen, it's not to elevate the messenger, it's to communicate the message. Believe me, I'd be a lot more comfortable just standing right in front of you on the floor. But we want to make sure that people can see and that people can here. And so they put that planning in there. The King James Version calls it, they, they made a pulpit. And, and they, they, there's a lot of confusion about what actually is a pulpit. The pulpit is not what many people would, would think of as, the pulpit is not the lectern. The pulpit is the platform. You go into old churches and the, the guy would have to go up steps and he'd preach like way up there in the pulpit it's, it's the platform that enables the voice to be projected, enables the, the preacher to be seen and to be heard. And so they made it for this occasion, taking care of all of the small details. And no doubt Ezra would have had to have read some lists of names when he was reading the book of the law. And maybe Ezra was a lot like me. Maybe he felt a little bit nervous when he had to pronounce a bunch of names. So uh, here goes nothing. In verse four, it says, and beside him stood uh, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasai on his right hand. That's not so bad, I guess. And uh, Padiah and Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And so there's these other people who were there on the platform with him. And maybe they were getting the next scroll ready for Ezra to read. Maybe, I mean, this went on for five or six hours. Maybe some of them actually did the reading for, for Ezra. We're not told what these people uh, did, but they were there on the platform. Then in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. Again, what's being elevated is not the messenger. What's being elevated is the message. The, the, the platform and the lights here this morning are not to focus your attention on me, but to focus your attention on God's word. And there's symbolism here. It says that he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. There's symbolism in that the Bible is over us. We're not over the Bible. Too many people today approach the Bible as though we're over it. I believe, I believe this part's true. I believe this part's not. I believe I'm not going to follow that. I'm not going to believe that. As though we're over the Bible. We're not over the Bible. The Bible is over us. And the Bible tells us how we ought to live and what we ought to be all about. And so he stood on this platform, not to elevate himself, but to elevate God's word. And then at the end of verse 5, as he opened it, all the people stood. They showed respect for the word of God. So attentive. He didn't say, please stand. 
No, they were all watching. They were all attentive. And they stood out of reverence and respect for God's word. Then verse six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice how Ezra opens the scroll and the first thing he does is bless the Lord, the great God. We don't bless the Bible, we bless God. They, the Bible is what taught them about God, what spoke to them about God. And here is the third sign that God is speaking. There's unity, there's attentiveness, and there's also worship. Worship. Some churches are all about worship and not about the Bible. Some churches are all about Bible and not about worship. We are aiming to be a church that is about both. Because one propels the other. That worshiping God creates a hunger to know him more. And then when you know him more, you, go, you, you, you want to worship him more because you've learned something about him in the word. Worship and the word go together. So powerfully and so beautifully. It's what we see here. Again, it's crucial to understand we don't worship the word of God. We worship the God of the word. And so we respect the Bible. We revere the Bible only because of what the Bible tells us about who God is. Notice the different postures and positions. Notice how they stood up in verse five. Then they get verbal they say, amen, amen. Then they lift their hands. Then they bow their heads. There's a number of different postures that people can take when they're hearing God's word or when they're engaged in worship. And you might say, well, you know what? I'm not really into raising my hands. I'm more traditional. Well, that's actually inaccurate because it's actually traditional to raise your hands. You could say, I'm more conservative that's allowed, but you're not more traditional because 445 BC is about as traditional as you can get. And they raise their hands. Now, we're not gonna go around and be forcing people, hey, get those up there. You're not worshiping. <laughs> Listen, thank God for unity, right? There's Ezra's, there's Nehemiah's. There's different kinds of people, different personalities. You're not gonna force anything on anyone, but don't think you're being more traditional or more faithful to the Bible by worshiping at your hands at your side. There's a variety of postures. I also love how... So, Ezra's up there in verse six. He blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, amen, amen. I could be honest with you. Sometimes I feel like I'm all alone up here. And I, I, just, I just wanna give you all permission. If you agree with what's being said, say amen. amen. And if, listen, because sometimes I feel like, are you actually picking up what I'm trying to put down by God's grace? And, and we, we need to know, listen, it's not just for me, it's for all of God's people to recognize we are all in this together and that God is speaking. And so I could use a little bit more. I just wanna give you a little bit of freedom. Listen, don't draw attention to yourself, but a little bit more interaction I think would be helpful for all of us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. And so God is working among his people. They are worshiping. And they are worshiping expressively, raising their hands, bowing their heads, saying amen. They're attentive. They're into it. They're allowing God to speak to them. And then in verse 7, here comes another list of names. Pray for me. 
It says, and uh, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasai, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law. Here's the fourth sign that God's speaking, is understanding. Understanding. These, these, this list of people, they helped the people understand. It mentions the Levites right there in the middle of verse seven. The Hebrew's unclear if, are all of these people Levites? Or was it this list of people whose names were hard to pronounce? And then, and then, and the Levites also helped. We, we don't know specifically the identity of, of those Levites there. It says, but they, we understand their focus and their mission. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So again, we don't know exactly what this looked like logistically. My guess would be that Ezra and the 13 guys on the platform would do some reading and do some explaining, some teaching from the platform. And then when the people, as they remained in their places, these other individuals went out into the crowd and said, does anyone have any questions? Is that making sense? Can I help you with anything? Do you, want, do you understand how that applies to your life and how that makes a difference? That there was an opportunity for people to engage in a, in a Q&A and wrestling with how this applies or asking questions. Uh, there was a, a large group at the time. They couldn't just have you know, someone from the crowd kind of put up their hand. And so they provided this means to help people to understand. We don't know what it looks like. We know what that looks like here at Harvest. At the end of every service, we've got people standing at the front. We're here to pray for you. We're also here to answer any questions that you might have. You know, the, the preacher said something like this, and, uh, but, uh, but what about this verse? Because how do those two fit together? Or here's my situation in my life. I really want to obey what God's word says, but it seems, it seems hard for me. Can you help me understand that? We also have small groups where we have hundreds of people gathering in homes every single week who are studying the same passage that was preached on Sunday with specific questions aimed at helping us understand the word of God. The end of verse seven says, they helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. Notice this, verse eight. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The goal was that it would be understood. God's word is meant to be read at the water gate. It's meant for everybody. It's, it's meant for every situation of our lives. It's not just meant for the scholar. It's not just meant for the super spiritual person. Everyone needs to be able to understand it. And we have ways of helping people understand here at Harvest. The church down the street might have a, a different way. The people in Nehemiah 8 had a different way. There's, but the goal, the end goal, is that everyone would understand you might walk out this door today and say, I don't agree with what Ted was saying today. And I'm fine with that. But I would hate for anyone to walk out this door today and say, I don't understand what Ted was talking about. That's a huge fail. And we cannot let that happen. And our desire, our aim is that everyone would understand what God's word is saying. See, here, here's why it's so crucial we, we talked earlier at, about how we are looking back, and we're in 2016, we're looking at a document that was an event that, was, that happened and that was recorded around 444 BC. And there, I mean, it was, it was written in Hebrew. 
We don't speak Hebrew, we speak English. And it was written to people living in, in Palestine. We don't live in Palestine, we live in Brampton. And it was written in a different culture in a different time. And so there's a lot, as we look back, there's a lot that we don't understand and we need to study it. We need people like Ezra who set their heart to study and to do and to teach. But here's the amazing thing. As we're looking back to the people living in the city of Jerusalem, they were also looking back. They were reading a, reading a document that was a thousand years older than they were. And yeah, Moses wrote in Hebrew and they spoke Hebrew. And yeah, Moses led them to the promised land and they're in the promised land. And yeah, there were a lot of things that they had in common, but a thousand years is a long time. I remember my first year at Queen's University, I signed up for Introduction to English Literature. And I honestly, I was in that class for about three months until I read something that I actually thought was in English. Beowulf and Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. I can't remember. You never would think that I would be relieved to be reading Shakespeare. These things were written in English, but because so many years had gone by, there was a real difference. I needed help. I needed my professor to help me understand what was being said. And that's what's going on in verse 8. They read from the book. It was an old book. They didn't throw it off to the side and say, forget this, it's too old, let's come up with something new. No, they started with the book. Good preaching, good teaching, good small group leading, all starts with the book. They read from the book, that's the authority. But then it says they read it clearly. There's a, a footnote in my Bible, you could probably have one there. The, the footnote says something along the lines of paragraph by paragraph or interpretation. The word literally means to break up. They took the word and they broke it up, not to destroy the word, but to help people understand, like cutting your kids' food for them so they can chew it. And so they, they read from the word clearly, paragraph by paragraph, and then notice this, they gave the sense. So they broke down the word and then they explained what it meant. Here's the overall understanding of it. So that all for the goal that the people understood the reading. And so the people are understanding. And check out how they responded in, in verse 9. It says, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. When they heard God's word, they wept and they mourned. Now when it's saying law there, it's not just referring to you know, the Ten Commandments and the book of Leviticus and all the different laws. Law was a catch-all term, Torah, which, which meant the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so the reason why they wept was not just because of they knew they had broken the Ten Commandments, but because they heard the whole story of what God had been doing. They heard about Adam and Eve having everything. They're in paradise. And how they had squandered it. 
and how they had disobeyed God and believed the lie from Satan and rejected the truth from God. They read about how God called Abraham and chose him to make this great nation. And they read about how that nation was enslaved in Egypt and how God rescued them from slavery, but then how they just turned around and rebelled in the wilderness. And they read all about this and they did what I pray would happen so often when God's word is preached in this church is that as they heard God's story, they found themselves in the story. They were reminded about Adam and Eve and they said, I'm just like that. And they they looked at the people rebelling in the wilderness and saying, I'm just like that. And God had, his purpose was to bring us to this promised land. And here we are, what are we doing here? And Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites said, stop weeping. And here's what they, here's what they told them, verse 10. Then they said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. He says, have a holiday, have a party, get your family together, have a feast. And this is why, and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yes, it's true. You're finding yourself in the story. And yes, you have rebelled, just like the people did in the wilderness, just like Adam and Eve. But look at the amazing grace of God. You are back in the promised land. You don't deserve to be here. You you deserve to stay in exile permanently. It wasn't your own righteousness that somehow made it possible for you to come back. No, God stirred the heart of Cyrus to bring us back here. He brought leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah to help us. God's joy is our strength that he, for whatever reason, chooses to delight in us and has chosen to rescue us and to bring us to this place. And you need to understand that when you come to God's word, yes, there is a time where you might mourn or you might weep as you come to terms with the reality of your own sin. But that's, and you find yourself in the story, but you need to understand that's not the whole story. And Nehemiah and Ezra wanted to tell the people the whole story. The whole story is that God loves you. And that he sent his son to die for you. And that he has has promised to take you to that promised land. And that the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Listen, the people in Jerusalem, these were not easy days that were ahead of them. And we're not living under the illusion that to be a Christian in 2016 in a nation like Canada is getting any easier. But the joy of the Lord will be our strength, knowing that he is with us and that he loves us. And so that's how they counsel the people. And that is the last sign that God is speaking. It is the most clear. It is joy. That when God is speaking, there is joy. There is joy. And so verse 11 says, So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. They thought they understood. That's what made them weep. But then Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites clarified the whole story. And now they are rejoicing because they knew who God was and they understood what God had done for them. Then look at verse 13. On the second day, when the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of God's law. Six hours the day before wasn't enough. They were so hungry for God's word. 
They called Ezra. They wanted to have another Bible study. Verse 14, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And so they're reading God's word and they find out, they're probably reading Leviticus chapter 23 that talks about the seventh month, the month of Tishri, where there were supposed to be three feasts that were supposed to happen. And they realized that they were right around the time of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was like a big camp out. And they were supposed to make these temporary shelters as a reminder of how they had temporary shelters when they were wandering in the wilderness. It was an annual reminder to be thankful that they had been brought to the promised land. And they realized that they had done that. Or they realized that this is the time where they needed to do that. Now they had just, come on, they had just built a wall. Do they really need to build all these booths? And they're finally at home in the city of Jerusalem. Do they really need to like go have a camp out outside? They just want, but they decide to obey. Now, do you think that that obedience led to this sort of drudgery, duty-based approach to life? Do you think that, do you think that this led to some sort of legalistic, lifeless Phariseeism? Because some people say that if you emphasize obedience too much, you're just gonna have this, you know, this vanilla, boring, draining, discouraging Christian life. Well, they chose to obey. They built the booths. Take a look at verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths. They obeyed the word and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. They, they made booths like never before. Like since they, ever since they entered the promised land, they had never had a feast of booths like this one. And notice this, and there was great rejoicing. Obedience led to greater joy. You read God's word, it gives you joy. You obey God's, joy, God's word, it only increases your joy. That's what God's word does. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Psalm 19, verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Psalm 119, 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever for they are the joy of my heart. Heart. John 15, 11, listen to what Jesus said. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says the reason why I'm giving you my word is because my word will give you joy. And notice how it says that you will have my joy. The joy of Ted Duncan is not my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And we only find strength when we tap into not our own joy, but when we tap into God's joy. The people of God are joyful. We need to understand this. The people of God are joyful because God is joyful. We so often think that gloominess is somehow akin to godliness. That the more kind of down in the dumps we are, the closer we are to God. Couldn't be further from the truth. God is the happiest being in all of existence. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. He is not a drag. He is a delight. And he is filled with joy. And when we hear his word, we hear his joy. 
And we get filled with his joy. Paradigm shifting, mind blowing. Zephaniah 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Notice this. The Lord God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. And with gladness. That we are filled with joy because when we come to God's word, we see that God rejoices in us. The people are there. What are we doing here in the promised land? Why, is this, why have these walls been rebuilt? The only explanation is that God rejoices in his people. Even though they sinfully rebel against him. That he rejoices in us. And that Jesus, who was the most joyful human ever, despised joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. And despised its shame. So that we could be called servants of God so that Jesus will one day look us in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what happens when a community gets around God's word, is united by it, is attentive to it, begins to understand it, and it fuels their worship. It leads to joy. That's what happens when God speaks. Thank you. Thank you that you are not a silent God. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. And thank you, God, thank you that you are not a God who speaks in vague and uncertain terms or, or language that's too... And so God, we want to invite you to speak to us, Lord. So often we live our lives lacking joy. And so God, I pray that you would speak to us, speak to us the whole story the whole story of how you love us, of how you sent Jesus to die for us, of how we deserve only hell, and yet you have chosen to save us and to forgive us. So God, I pray that we would be a people who are not simply characterized as people who are all about the Bible, but that we would be known as people who are filled with joy. And so God, we love you, we thank you, and we invite you to speak. We invite you to continue to speak to us. God, when we gather on Sundays, when we gather in small groups, when we open our word privately, God, we invite you to speak to us, God. Would you speak to us? We need to hear from you. We love you. We thank you, God. Say what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.